This is SciX, the Systemic Psychedelic Podcast. Welcome everybody to our latest podcast interview or podcast episode. This one is quite a special one because we are actually recording live from the World of Wisdom Festival and we have Martin Ball today as our guest. Very excited to have him on here today. Well, thank you much, uh, very much for having me and it's uh, fun to be participating in the World of Wisdom. And yeah, Martin is an internationally known expert on entheogens and non-duality. He's the author of numerous books, um, such as Being Human and Entheogenic Liberation, and is best known for his work with 5-Neo-DMT. He's also a podcaster, visionary artist, musician, and non-dual entheogenic integration coach. One question, since, you know, with SciX, one of the core themes that we um, look at is that intersection of um, psychoactivation. So, you know, work with psychedelics um, and meditation and other forms of of shifting into altered states, um, the intersection with that and system change and what's happening on um, in the real world, so to say. Now, especially with your non-dual perspective, I would be very curious to first of all hear your views on the current state of what's going on in the outer material world and what would you say are the greatest challenges that we're facing? Wow. Well. Really, if, if I were to just sum it up just as succinctly as I could, is we're having a crisis of ego. <laughs> we're having a crisis of separate identities that are coming from a place largely of woundedness, pain, distortion, illusion, projection. And because we live in this highly integrated global society that See, the, the ego is, at the individual level, it's a collection of patterns of energy that create a sense of character, a sense of self that we identify with. And the ego in and of itself, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, um, but it does tend towards illusion and attachment to false belief. And that's how we create our identities. And Identities also extend into what I call meta-egos, which would be um, identification with particular politics or religions or cultures, various identities. And um, a lot of the ways that the ego functions is out of fear and out of projection and out of illusion. And in a highly integrated global society in which we live, we see that there are all these conflicts going on around the world at multiple levels where egos, identities are conflicting with each other. And, you know, human society has pretty much always been that way. Um, so there's nothing new there, but we have reached a particular level where we're all interacting with each other. Um, you know, again, that it's a global society, that we're not just living in separate parts of the world. And so, you know, local identities conflict with each other. Here it's, this is going on at the, at the global scale. And within that, there's all kinds of projection and beliefs about the quote, the other, whether we're afraid of someone because of their political identity or their ethnic identity or their religious identity and we are facing unprecedented challenges in terms of the disparities between the wealthy and the average person. Um, so access to money, which also translates in access into healthcare, into education, into housing, into food, clothing, basic necessities. Um, and we are seeing, of course, religious conflicts and political conflicts and through the environmental stress. Um, we are going to be seeing even more of this with mass migrations of people. And of course, with like conflicts in the Middle East and Europe, you know, with people migrating, trying to migrate into Europe and fears of the other and the Muslim and the foreigner. And we're seeing the rise of kind of neo-fascism 
um, and hard right politics like Trump here in America um, and elsewhere in South America, also in Europe. And of course we have this global pandemic going on and we have people dividing themselves along political, religious and cultural lines. Um, so we're, we're in an egoic mess right now. And we see that like here in America, right now with the pandemic of coronavirus, that we can see that actually this country has been propped up by a number of egoic illusions. You know, Americans like to say, we're number one, we're the best country in the world. And what coronavirus has shown is that we are a complete dysfunctional mess. So the egoic illusion that we've held onto of our identity as Americans and we're the best, really what's being revealed is that we're a society that's been built on massive economic disparity between the wealthy and average people. Through the pandemic, the wealthy have gotten far more wealthy. The average person, you know, like myself, getting laid off. People are losing their incomes. People are losing their homes. People are losing their access to healthcare. And it also we have, you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement happening at the same time, which is really speaking to the fact that we're a country that's been built on systemic racism, on slavery, on genocide of Native Americans. And so the, the egos that have been built have been to protect and hide us from these realities and to subjugate certain categories and classes of people in order to maintain the illusion of who it is that we think that we are. So then to kind of circle back around, what non-duality is, is the recognition. And well, really not just the recognition, but the what's most important is the direct experience of the reality that we literally are all one. And what that means is, is not just some feel good of like, oh, we're all human beings, so we should all just get along with each other. Or, you know, we're all connected to each other because we all live in the same ecology. We all live on one planet. It's not that. The true non-dual position is based on the experience which is available to human beings which can be through meditation or through spiritual techniques, which honestly are not actually very effective. What is far more effective is through entheogenic experience and primarily through 5-MeO-DMT. But is the direct experience where you transcend the individual human ego, your individual sense of self. And if you're able to maintain awareness and presence through that, there is this sense of I am, and that sense of I am extends infinitely through all space and through all time. And the realization that, wow, there's really only one being, there's only one consciousness. And that one being is interacting with itself through the game of subject and object, of self and other, of me and not me. But that's just a mask that's worn by the ego that creates this self-identity that says, well, I'm this person and everybody else is something different. And you know that's true at a relative level, but at the absolute level, there's only one. And that is what I see as the ultimate remedy for egoic dysfunction is not just, and it's not a belief, like you can, you can tell people this and they can study it and they can read about it. Um, and that's great but nothing that you can learn about non-duality is actually non-duality that when you experience it you realize that any thought that you had about it was still within the realm of duality of it's this or it's that or it's not this or it's not that but when you go into the full infinite experience you realize that well nothing that i thought about it actually is this so to really understand it and live it you need to experience it it has to be something that comes from your direct experience. And I can speak from this very personally. As I mentioned, I have my PhD in religious studies. I studied comparative mysticism. I studied all these different religious and spiritual traditions. And at a core level, I believed that everything was one at some level, but to some extent. But when I actually experienced it myself, I realized nothing I really thought about it was fundamentally true. And that that then allows, when people have these experiences, it allows them to let go 
of their egoic structures, their illusions, their projections, and their beliefs. And it allows for a reorientation of how you interact with others, how you interact with the world. And, you know, for example, myself personally, I was very much a political activist. You know, I was out there for environmental causes and um, political causes and all of that. And after my non-dual experience and transformation, I really realized, well, all of that is just other forms of ego games that people are playing. And so the ultimate solution to the problems that we face as a species is not more political activity. Actually, it is one person at a time having their own non-dual experience and transforming from the inside out. And that the more people who can have that experience and learn how to relate to each other at that level, then these other issues will actually resolve themselves in a sense. You know, it's like, I fully support Black Lives Matter protests. I think that's very significant and it's very important, but we're still dealing with identity issues there. We're still dealing with this community versus that community. And so non-duality is a way of both recognizing that and healing that and then transcending and transforming beyond that. And to get there, it's going to be messy because we have a deep history of racism and subjugation that we have to heal and move through. And that's at the individual level. That's what the non-dual transformation can engender within the individual. You make peace with yourself with your history, with your wounds, and then you can also choose to let go of them so that you can be authentically present in whatever moment arises that is not conditioned by the wounds and the pain and the struggle that have brought you to where you are now. So it allows you to be a different kind of person, a different kind of human being. And that's where I see the greatest potential of entheogenic work is that it, it makes, these kinds of experiences and transformations possible at a level that is just not achievable through spirituality or, or through religion. Mm, thanks. I love the depth of your answer. Um, I would be curious um, to hear more from you about how you see the different approaches um, within that arena of psychoactivation, because you've already mentioned that you don't really um, think that meditation is that effective. You've also mentioned that you think that 5-Neo-DMT seems more effective than others. And maybe you could enlighten me and the audience a bit more about um, why you think that is and where you see the main differences in the various approaches and substances. Yeah, well, we can kind of start with, say, the traditional meditative approach. And... Um, it's, it's not that it's not effective. It's just that it's not nearly anywhere near as effective as working with entheogens. Um, so, you know, if we look at say Hinduism or Buddhism, these two religious traditions that are heavily steeped uh, in meditation and to some degree within non-duality as well, to really commit yourself, like, like in Buddhism, to really commit yourself to the path of Buddhism. Um, it's largely, it, even with, okay, there's many different branches of Buddhism, so it's hard to make just real general statements about it. Um, but at, at the core level of Buddhism, the idea is if you are going to have a non-dual experience and have this transformation take place, that you need to dedicate yourself as a monk or a nun. And Within these traditions, um, you know, depending on if you're talking about Hinayana, Mahayana, or Vajrayana Buddhism, they still say that you will actually need to spend many thousands of lifetimes <laughs> practicing as a monk or a nun before you're actually going to reach a state of enlightenment and liberation. So even within the traditions itself, it's actually recognizing that you can spend your whole life as a monk or a nun and you'll make this much progress. And then you have to do it again, and 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 again. And so within that pool of people who are practicing as Buddhist monks or nuns, only a very small number of them are actually expected to have 
a non-dual experience, which is equated with an enlightenment experience, that that is the experience of nirvana, of escape from the illusion of samsara into the true nature of the self. So not, you know, only a small percentage of people can actually dedicate themselves to being a monk or a nun for their lifetime. And in order for a, even a percentage of the population to devote themselves to being a monk or a nun, you must have a large percentage of the population not be monks or nuns in order to support the monks and nuns who are basically removing themselves from life and saying, well, I'm just gonna spend the rest of my life sitting here contemplating the nature of existence and contemplating the nature of the self. So it's just, it's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people are actually going to have this full experience. And even there, um, in my own understanding and uh, kind of analysis of the situation, that even within those traditions, most people would have what I would call um, a mental breakthrough, where it becomes, it's a very mental event. And there's even within Hinduism and Buddhism, there's a lot of disparaging of the body and the physical world and that enlightenment is seen as somehow transcending or escaping the physical world. And the physical world itself is referred to as illusion. It's Maya. I mean, this thing's not even real, according to these traditions. Um, so there's a lot involved there and you actually have to buy into a lot of dogma. You have to buy into a lot of belief systems and that there actually is a spiritual identity that you have to adopt. And so it's, it's, it's really involved with the ego to quite a degree. So that's great. You know, these traditions have been around for thousands of years and they've had some, you know, great successful enlightened masters and things like that. Um, but we live in a world of what, some 7 billion people and all of us are experiencing the pains of ego-based illusion identity and the consequences that come from that, which we are all kind of suffering through at this time period. And also with the fact that we are we, we might be over the tipping point in terms of ecological catastrophe at this point. Humanity does not have the time or the opportunity for people to spend lifetime after lifetime after lifetime meditating to try and resolve this stuff. We're at a point of crisis right now. Humanity needs not necessarily a quick fix, but we need an accelerated methodology in order to help transform the individual human identity as well as large scale human structures and society. Now this is where entheogens are way more effective than anything else available within reality, okay? Now 5-MeO-DMT, 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, I call it the crown jewel, meaning that it is the most effective psychedelic substance that exists on this planet that can bring people directly into a non-dual experience within a matter of seconds. And you can take someone. Now, it's, it's important to qualify that not everybody gets the same result. So I always tell people, look, no matter what psychedelic or entheogen you're talking about, results vary. But this is the highest potential of 5-MeO-DMT. And this potential exists more with 5-MeO-DMT than it does with any other psychedelic. And so in an ideal case, you can take someone who has no belief in God, who has no religious practice, who has no spiritual practice whatsoever, and they can have an experience with 5-MeO-DMT and within a matter of seconds, they can realize because they're having the direct experience, oh my God, everything really is all one. There is only one consciousness. There is only one being that is interacting with itself 
through the disguise of self and other, of me and not me, but actually I am that, it is me. We literally are all one. And so then your illusions of who it is that you think that you are, they lose their grip on you. And this is also why it can be very psychologically um, challenging for people to integrate the experience because it's like, oh, I thought I was just me, but I'm obviously not just me, the self that I thought that I was. And 5MEO DMT does this so reliably that it makes this experience available in potential form to mass numbers of people. And like I said, you can take someone with no spiritual or religious practice whatsoever. And within a number of seconds, they can have this experience. Now, traditional religions say, oh, well, that's why it's dangerous and that really you should be a monk or a nun, you should be spending your lifetime working on this. And you know, my response to that is we're out of time. We are simply out of time. That the time for this level of realization to become widespread within humanity, it's right now. It needs to happen now. And I think that from kind of the metaphysical perspective, that's why so many people are currently interested in not only psychedelics in general. I mean, this is something that is happening around the world, but also 5-MeO-DMT in particular. It's because this is the medicine for the crisis time that we live in. It's simply what works. And it works at a level that it's just incomparable. And, you know, a, a lower order magnitude psychedelic would be psilocybin. And I think here it's very illustrative that here in the United States, Johns Hopkins University, I think it was back in 2006, 2006, 2009, I forget the exact year, but they did a study where they took totally average people, people with no experience with psychedelics, people across different spectrums of socioeconomic status and religious and spiritual belief, and they gave them either nothing, or they gave them Ritalin, an antidepressant, or they gave them psilocybin, uh, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. 67% of the people who got psilocybin ended up saying it was the most important or among the top five important spiritual experiences of their lives from one session with psilocybin mushrooms. Now, you could go to any average church or religious or spiritual congregation and you could ask people, <laughs> how were the last five hours for you? Were the last five hours of your experience here in this church, is that one of the most important experiences of your lives? And probably the majority of people would say no. Okay, but here, you, the majority of people who were given psilocybin, 67%, I mean, that's a really high percentage, said it was among the top five most important experiences of their lives. And a good percentage of those people said it actually was the number one most important spiritual experience of their lives, okay? There is no religion or spiritual tradition on earth that has that kind of return rate on positive spiritual outcome. Psychedelics simply are superior. There's, I don't think there's any argument about that, that the data is clear. And that's why people around the world, I mean, from, Every religion, every culture, every ethnicity, everywhere in the world right now, people are becoming more and more interested in psychedelics. And it's because they work and they do not require that you buy into any religion or any doctrine or any dogma. It does not matter what your belief system is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter your gender, your sexual identity. None of that is relevant because you have an opportunity to go into this experience where you are amplifying and transforming your energy and you can actually transcend your individual egoic perspective and come to a direct appreciation of the fundamental nature of reality as all one. And that simply is what the world needs at this point. Mm, thanks. And then what's your sense, because you said you also offer integration, um, coaching or consulting. Um, I'm wondering, how do people then 
ideally go from having that experience to actually making required changes in their life and also you know if we think about um, the bigger picture and their professional um, impact and and such to to then have an impact on these outer larger issues that we talked about yeah well so i like to refer to the non-dual experience as the ultimate experience of energetic truth in other words when people have the experience, they know that it is fundamentally true, not because they've agreed to it or that they believe it or that they think it. It's simply because they can feel the truth of it in the moment. And I liken this to you can have your eyes blindfolded and you'll know when you get in the sunlight versus being in the shade because you feel it, right? You're like, oh, I can feel the sun. So it's not, I don't believe in the sun. It's not, it's not that I want the sun to be there. It's just, I can feel it. Or another comparison would be that when you fall in love with someone, you know it because you feel it. Your heart just says, I love this person and I feel it. And it's, it's not because I think it, it's not because I believe it, it's not because I want it to be true. It just simply is, I feel it, I know it, I recognize it. And that's what the full non-dual experience is, is just this feeling of everything is one because I'm feeling myself in this moment as infinite and as unitary. And people who have this experience, when they come back from it, they say, nothing has ever felt so true as this. And so that's at you know, the ultimate level. Now at the individual personal level, what, what it then does is that you are able to then feel and through feeling come to understand that most of your identity and your choices and your beliefs and the ways that you interact with yourself and with others in the world is not based on truth but is based on what you believe or what you think. And you start to become aware of all the ways that you have constructed your ego to hide yourself, to not be authentic with yourself or with others, to be the thing that you think you should be. And then you project that onto others and use that to be critical of others and critical of yourself. And so what it does is it starts this process of this fundamental reorientation of learning how to tap into what is true within you rather than the illusions and the false beliefs that we have created our identity around. And one of the ways that I coach people, because, you know, a lot of people come with, okay, well, so what's the program now? Okay, I've had this experience, but now what's the program? What are the ideas I should adopt? What are the beliefs I should adopt? What are the practices I should adopt? And my answer is always be true to yourself. Be authentic. Don't edit or censor yourself. Don't get involved in projecting onto others. That Give other people the same freedom that you're looking to give to yourself. And, you know, at the personal level, this can mean that people suddenly realize, oh, I've been working in a job or a profession that actually does not nurture my authentic sense of self, my authentic energy. And maybe I've been participating in social um, and cultural structures that actually are denigrating others or are not supporting them in being their authentic Cells. Maybe I am involved in enforcing um, limiting structures, not only on myself, but also on other people. So it can start this radical process of, of people really giving themselves permission to discover what it is that's in their heart, that where their energy is naturally flowing, that they're being drawn to, and gives them the courage to step outside of their safety comfort zone of their ego and their illusions. So in that sense, it can be very terrifying for people because people can suddenly realize, oh my God, I've been living my whole life 
in a prison. I've been living my whole life in a set of illusions that I just don't believe in anymore. Um, you know, for example, you can also take somebody who's highly religious and then you give them 5-MeO-DMT and they have a direct experience and they realize that 99.99% .99 of their religion is total BS <laughs> and completely irrelevant. And if they've had their whole identity built around that, see, that, that's where it's challenging. It's like, you know, like, for example, um, the other day I, I was speaking with someone who was raised in a Muslim tradition. I was also speaking with somebody who was raised in the Catholic religious tradition. And both of these traditions, for the most part, really emphasize this idea that God is completely other than yourself and is a lawgiver and is either going to reward or punish you in some way. And see, it's very different if you're raised within that, that, okay, God exists outside of me and I have to pray to God. I have to worship God. I have to be a good boy. I have to be a good girl. I have to be a good Catholic. I have to be a good Muslim. And then you have this experience where you realize, oh my God, I am God at the <laughs> deepest level. God does not exist outside of me. God is everyone and everything, including me. And that means all these religious beliefs I've had they're meaningless. They have no value whatsoever. And so then the reorientation that takes place after that can be very disorienting for people. And then learning how to, okay, so I've used these structures of my religion, my culture, my society, my identity, my socioeconomic status. I've used all of that to create this character of myself, but now none of that works for me anymore. So how do I find what really is true for me? How do I become the potential? How do, how do I embody the potential that's always been there that I've never let really manifest and express itself through myself? And so that's why I like to guide people that this is an energetic process of letting go, clearing out, and restructuring that brings you to a state, right? Like my, my book, title entheogenic liberation that through the the conscientious and conscious use of entheogens you can actually bring yourself to a state of liberation from the prison that you had created for yourself through the construction of your ego that you can become a free authentic and whole person and that the responsibility is on you the individual if you're waiting for jesus to save you you're out of luck. If you're waiting for Buddha to enlighten you, you're out of luck. If you're waiting for the Mahdi uh, to come, you're out of luck because it's you. It's always been you. You are the one who has to liberate yourself. Society isn't going to do it for you. Having the right politician in office is not going to do it for you. Having the right set of laws and social customs, that's not going to do it. So it puts a huge amount of responsibility on the individual, but that's actually the only thing that any of us have any amount of control or influence over is ourselves. Hmm. So it's a lot of responsibility, but it's actually the place that you can affect positive change. And by becoming a more whole, authentic and genuine person, then you can inspire that in others and then they inspire that in others and then that inspiration spreads out and then people can create new forms of collective interaction and the potential to restructure society is tremendous it's never happened at this level before and so i think that that's what we're seeing that's what we're living through and kind of like how when an individual goes through this experience, they find a lot of their old stuff is collapsing and not working anymore and has actually been dysfunctional. That's what we're seeing at the large scale across culture and society right now. And it's happening at the individual level too. So this is, in a sense, this is the passage of transformation that we're all either willingly or unwillingly going through right now, but it, it's happening. And just like with a powerful psychedelic experience, the best option is surrender and allow and know that there are new possibilities on the other side of that deconstruction that you can't even imagine at this point in time. So surrender, allow, and let yourself be transformed.
and find what is authentic within you and live from that place. And if everybody does that, then there's a great deal of hope for humanity and for the world. If we fight against it, it's not going to be pretty. Mm. So. Mm, thanks. <laughs> um, what I was wondering about um, in relation to that is at some point you said something along the lines of um, it's one person at a time having non-dual experiences. Um, yeah. And I was wondering, because you can look at change, let's say um, societal change, system change, kind of from this bottom up and top down perspective. And um, the question whether, well, does every single person have to have um, these kind of experiences and, and that's how the change is going to happen, um, which would be more like a, let's say, bottom up perspective, I would say. Yeah. Or is it, um, you know, there's even this meme saying Donald Trump needs to take some ayahuasca. Would it be um, desirable or an option that um, if the top leaders were the first ones or the ones um, taking psychedelics, having non-dual experiences, and through that then triggering the change in a top-down fashion? Like, what, what are your views on that? Well, ideally, I think it should go both directions. That it does need to be one person at a time. And again, there is sort of this groundswell of interest in psychedelics and in non-duality, which is reaching out around the globe. So the, the, the bottom up is definitely, it's already taking place. And at some level, the top down is also taking place simultaneously. Um, not at the level that's really creating a crucial difference, but just for example, here in, the United States, um, you know, recently, now he's not a person of political import, but Mike Tyson, for mm. example, um, world famous boxer, strong man, and kind of a mean, vicious guy. He had his first experience with 5-MeO-DMT through toad secretions and said that it completely transformed his sense of self and that he let go of the monster that he had been. And because Mike Tyson had this experience, then um, this guy, Tony Robbins, who's been a long time inspirational, motivational speaker who deals with lots of big corporate folks and stuff like that. He had his 5-MeO-DMT experience and said, wow, this really transformed me. So it actually is happening in the upper echelons of society. Now, obviously we haven't gotten Donald Trump yet. <laughs> um, man, I mean, I would love for him to drink ayahuasca i think there would be so much purging <laughs> that he, would, he would really have a very very difficult time because i mean he's the exact opposite of what i'm talking about he's a man who so thoroughly lives in a world of lies and illusions that he's completely disconnected from any sort of empathy with any other human being he has a completely fictionalized view of the world. I mean, he, he lives in a fantasy land and something like ayahuasca would really break that apart for him and he'd have a very, very difficult time. But the thing is, he's also a miserable, miserable, miserable man. I mean, this is someone who hates himself so much at such a deep level that he has to project that out onto everyone and everything else and constantly needs reaffirmation. So yes, he could absolutely benefit from it and that I think that many of our political and cultural leaders could but see this is what's happening like for example here in Ashland where I live in southern Oregon just kind of as a, as a small microcosm for the world that um, we have a local ayahuasca church we also have um, Native American peyote church here in Ashland and what has happened is that religious leaders in other religious communities have also gone to drink ayahuasca. For example, um, they ended up serving ayahuasca at the local Jewish temple, okay? So it, it, it's moving out, it actually is moving out. And even here in Oregon coming up this year, just qualified for the November ballot is the Oregon Psilocybin Services Initiative. So at the statewide level, we're going to have the opportunity to legalize psilocybin magic mushroom-based therapy and transformation programs here in Oregon if the vote goes through. Um, and that this is something that is actually being supported by a number 
of politicians within the state, that they're recognizing, yes, this has value. So the transformation is taking place. I think at the grassroots level, at the bottom-ups level, we're well on our way. At the, at the top-down level, we could use more of that. Um, and so we're, we're probably not seeing enough of that. And, and probably a lot of that is due to the fact that politicians are still heavily wedded to the whole war on drugs program and the misinformation that has been produced around drugs in general, let alone psychedelics specifically. Um, so there's still a lot of room for progress and change there. But you know, we do have um, a few people in the United States Congress who have come out and said that they support legalizing psilocybin and psilocybin therapy and things like that. So I think that the changes are coming, not necessarily fast enough, but, but they, they are coming. And that then kind of working off of this model that if you have quote unquote enlightened leaders, and that might be a strong statement, at least leaders who are more open to the potential, that then that can filter down into what policies they support, what structures of society they want to support. Um, you know, I think marijuana is another good example that this is something that has now mostly been legalized within the United States, but the federal government still says that marijuana should be an illegal schedule one felony that should put you in prison. The majority of the states have said, that's stupid. There's no reason for that. And a few, a few people who have been running for president, they've said, yeah, I support legalizing marijuana. So there's, there's still a lag there. Um, so the politicians and the political leaders, I think they still need to catch up. And also I think many religious leaders do as well, um, where some religions, like ironically, I mean, this, this is one of the things that really strikes me as one of the, just the major ironies of religion in the world, is that um, you know, Islam is seen as being very dogmatic and very strict in their beliefs, yet the religious leadership of Shiite Islam in Iran has explicitly said that it's okay for Islamic followers to drink ayahuasca and oh. to eat psilocybin mushrooms. Wow. It is religiously <laughs> allowed. Yeah. And this, I mean, this happened in Iran. <laughs> so Iran is more advanced on the spiritual use of entheogens than Western democracies. Okay. So, you know, it is happening, but it's just, it's not, it's not happening enough. And I think the more of that that we see, that the more that that allows space within society for people to then explore that and have these transformational experiences. Mm, thanks. Yeah, I actually have one more last question before we end this interview. And okay. that's the role of um, indigenous and um, shamanic leaders or cultures in all of this. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, there are also some tensions around um, whether the shamanic way of administrating um, entheogenic use is the one right way to do it because they've been doing it for such a long time, they're culturally so close to these substances, or whether we need like a Western um, psychotherapeutic approach for this. And um, yeah, so I would be curious to hear your view on that, especially because you emphasize that um, you're not necessarily a spiritual um, person. Yeah. So, yeah. To what extent do we need, or sh should we, um, should we, um, should we focus on that path and and that cultural approach? Yeah. Well, I think that there's definitely room for all of it, and that it, even you know, for Westerners, I honestly think that having um, our own particular styles, approaches, and structures, I think would be very valuable. That what we have seen, like with ayahuasca, there's become this whole ayahuasca tourism that takes place. And that that 
doesn't necessarily support the indigenous cultures, that the way that ayahuasca has been served within indigenous cultures comes with a whole worldview, comes with a whole ecology, comes with a whole way of living on the planet and in the jungle. And when you take someone from Western society and you throw them into that, it's not necessarily the most effective for the Westerner who maybe doesn't have beliefs in spirits and entities and witchcraft and magic and things like that. And then it also then affects those indigenous cultures so that they start to cater to tourists rather than to their own culture. And then we also have issues of cultural appropriation that take place where then suddenly you have a white guy saying, oh, well, I'm a Shipibo shaman and let me use my you know, shamanic uh, practices on you. Um, and we've also, seen that there have been areas of abuse that have taken place there. And, um, you know, that, that there's value to those indigenous traditions. But in large part, they're most valuable to the indigenous traditions themselves. And the more outsiders that come in to participate in those, the more those cultures are being compromised and changed. Um, and so for your average Westerner, I do think that having maybe a therapeutic approach, psychotherapeutic approach, um, or you know, just a transformational approach in general uh, can be more beneficial. Which is not to say that you know people shouldn't go to South America and drink ayahuasca. That you know people get something from that, but it definitely doesn't work for everyone. And also. One of the limitations that I have likes to point out is that shamanic cultures um, do tend to emphasize a shamanic worldview, which also tends to be rather dualistic in nature, where there are good spirits and bad spirits, good entities and bad entities. And that like one of the things that I've dealt with in my um, consultations that I deal with with people is for example, people who go to South America and have an ayahuasca retreat or experience and end up having a non-dual experience. And what they often tell me is that, and then when I tried to communicate what my non-dual experience was to the shamanic guides who were leading the ceremony, they didn't understand what I was trying to explain to them what my experience was. And they were not able to help me integrate it. So that I do think that there's somewhat of a limitation there, which is not to say that a Western approach is superior or better. It's just, it's different. It's different. And that these shamanic cultures are not necessarily built around the concept of non-duality, that they're, they're very dualistic in many ways. There are good shamans and there are bad sorcerers, right? There are good spirits and there are bad spirits. Non-duality transcends all of that. So there, for people who are really having these kinds of experiences, that the traditional culture isn't necessarily the best place for that to take place. And here we do have psychotherapeutic models that I think are a bit more amenable. Um, but I think that there's room for all of it, but that there does, especially for non-Indigenous people, there needs to be a lot of careful attention paid to the question of appropriation and the potential violation of culture. And, and in some ways, like for me personally, the traditional approach just doesn't work. You know, like I've been to the Native American church to eat peyote. And, you know, for me, as, as someone who's not a, a member of that culture, not a member of those traditions, there's just way too many rules. I mean, honestly, you know, I'm not into it. I'm not into the rules because there are, there's going to be, Within any tradition, there's going to be certain beliefs and structures that you're expected to participate in. And, you know, that I really advocate really coming from a very neutral approach and that that's what allows for the greatest transformation within people. Um, yeah, so I think there's room for all of it, but there's also room to be critical. There's also room to, I don't think that we should just do it well, they've been doing it this way for a thousand years in the Amazon, so we've all got to deal with ayahuasca this way. I don't think that that's the mm. case. Um, or, you know, when it comes to something like 5-MeO-DMT, there's not a lot of traditional use of 5-MeO-DMT. So I think here's an area where 
it's kind of open mm -hmm. to how people want to create that. And also with psilocybin mushrooms. Um, yes, psilocybin mushrooms have been used traditionally within um, indigenous cultures in Mexico, but psilocybin mushrooms also grow all around the world. Many, many different cultures have been influenced by psilocybin mushrooms. No one culture has the way to take mm. psilocybin mushrooms. And in a sense, because these are natural neurotransmitters that exist within nature, I think it's just a fundamental human right that we can all have access to these and that it doesn't need to be dominated by any one particular way or any one particular tradition. That we can honor the indigenous traditions, but we don't have to copy them. We don't have to try and be them. Like one of the things that kind of irritates me personally is when someone goes and they start participating in an indigenous culture and then they start wearing beads and feathers and they really start to kind of look the part and it's like well you're just replacing your one egoic identity as a westerner and then you're replacing it with oh i'm an earth loving you know indigenous person like where's the real you that's that's my mm -hmm. question for everyone where is the real you mm -hmm. and if you're just adopting trappings from somebody else you're just doing a replacement that's not necessarily any better. Yeah, maybe you feel happier, maybe you feel better, but you're still just replacing one set of illusions with another. And what I really wanna push people towards is go all the way and find yourself that you do not need to be structured by any culture, by any religion, by any tradition. You are you, only you get to be you. So find what that is authentically for yourself without having to be this that or the other thing just be you hmm. thank you i think that's actually a very nice note to end with um for the podcast yeah so yeah thanks um for the overall interview i really enjoyed this and learned a lot myself and yeah wishing you all the best for your work and for everything you do and think that yeah what you do is a great contribution All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and sharing all these ideas. Mm, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SciX, the Systemic Psychedelic Podcast. <laughs>